Good morning and uh, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As longtime listeners of our show know, each and every week we uh, examine the parasha, the weekly Torah portion that is read in synagogues uh, throughout the Jewish world. This week we are reading from the next to the last parasha, of the third book of the Torah, the third, the book known as Leviticus, or Vayikra in Hebrew, and its name is Bahar. Bahar is one of the shortest sections of the Torah, and that is because in non-Jewish leap years, Bahar is joined with what will be read next week, Bahukotai. Some of you are conversant with why the Jewish uh, cycle of readings needs a double portion, but let me remind you briefly about that. The Torah is split into 54 Torah portions known as parashiot. We usually read one Torah portion each Shabbat. However, there are 14 parashiot, depending on the year, that can potentially be paired together. So two Torah portions would be read on that Shabbat. Bahar and Bahukotai are one of those seven. There are a number of reasons why parashiot are doubled up, and I will try and give you the simplest explanation. The basic issue is that we split the Torah portion into the Torah into 54 portions. A regular Jewish year has 353 to 355 days. That leaves us with 50 to 51 Shabbatots on which to read the Torah. Additionally, when a Jewish holiday coincides with Shabbat, we read the special uh, reading assigned for that holiday instead of the weekly Torah portion thus often leaving us with a maximum of 48, sometimes even fewer weeks in a regular year, in which to read 54 Torah portions. In order to reconcile the weekly cycle of parashiot with the number of Shabbatots available, we need to double up some of the parashiot. In order to make it even more confusing, in a Jewish year, we add an extra month consisting of 30 days, which includes 40 more Shabbatot, or five, depending on the way, day of the week in which the new month starts. Thus, in a leap year, we have a lot fewer double portions. There are four possible pairings and they that occur in regular years. Since a leap year is four weeks longer, by reading these portions separately, we maintain an extra month's worth of readings. I hope you can follow that. If not, you can uh, refer to uh, a Jewish leap year or why do we read a double portion on the Internet. This year is a Jewish leap year, so Bahar and Bahukotai are separate portions, and this week, as the penultimate portion of Leviticus, we read Bahar. 
It begins in Leviticus 25 and continues through Leviticus 26. On the mountain of Mount Sinai, Bihar means on the mountain, God communicates to Moses the law of the sabbatical year. Every seventh year, all work on the land should cease and its produce becomes free for the taking of all. Seven sabbatical cycles are followed by a 50th year, the jubilee year on work in which work on the land ceases, all indentured servants are set free, and all ancestral estates in the Holy Land that have been sold revert to their original owners. Bihar also contains additional laws for the sale of lands and the prohibitions against fraud and usury. Well, as you can tell, the Torah has given us a lot to think about in just a few verses. With me this morning is Rabbi Elliot Strom, the founding rabbi and rabbi emeritus of Shir Ami Congregation in Newtown, Pennsylvania, and the author of a new novel entitled Rabbi Run. Rabbi Strom, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. A pleasure to be here. Truly a pleasure. Happy to see and be with you and uh, have a chance to talk with folks in the Ottawa Valley. Well, thank you. Um, this week's Torah portion um, is certainly brief, but chock full of challenging sections. And um, I'm wondering if we could begin with the notion of the Jubilee and the sabbatical. Um, do you want me to read those portions of the Torah to help us begin our conversation? Why don't we do that? All right. So I'm going to read from Leviticus 25. Verses 1 through 7, the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the Israelite people and say to them, When you enter the land that I assign to you, the land shall observe a Sabbath of the Lord. Six years you may sow your field, and six years you may prime your vineyard and gather in the yield. But in the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath of complete rest, a Sabbath of the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap the aftergrowth of your harvest or gather the grapes um, of your untrimmed vines. It shall be a year of complete rest for the land. But you may eat whatever the land during this Sabbath will produce. You and your male and female slaves, the hired and bound laborers who live with you. Your cattle and beasts in your land may eat all its yields. So the Torah is speaking a sabbatical of the land, not a sabbatical for individuals. What do you think the Torah meant by a sabbatical of the land? And why is the Torah um, interested in a, um, what might be called an agricultural approach um, to crop rotation. <laughs> well, so I think this, there's something ingenious going on here, and that shouldn't surprise us, given this, given the biblical source we're dealing with. I think that this is this is a succession of mounting sabbaths, and I think that what's understood that begins the whole discussion is the Sabbath that takes place every week, Shabbat that takes place once a week. What's the idea of Shabbat? It's a day when we're working hard the rest of the week. On the seventh day, we stop all work. 
We don't try and change the world as it is. So there's all these prohibitions for a traditional Jew of things that you are not allowed to do on the Sabbath, including lighting a light or carrying or anything that might change the world as it is. In other words, it's it's an acceptance of the fact that the world needs to go back to its primal state when people don't affect it. And that we unplug and accept the world as it is for a day, not trying to make any changes or improvements. We let it sit, we let it be, and it brings us a chance to breathe in and step back and see the bigger picture, see what's beyond that. Here, you've got two, we, we didn't do the reading of the Jubilee yet, but we're, we're dealing with the progression of Sabbath. So now we've got a Sabbath of years. And in the seventh year of that seven-year cycle, it's a Sabbath of the land. You ask the question, what's that got to do with why do we care about the land? This is an agricultural people. And the land is God's gift to us, to all people. So we have to respect the same way on, on the Sabbath of days. We have to allow our animals, for example, to take a day of rest, not just us. In the seventh year, the land takes a rest. And then comes the Jubilee, where you've got seven times seven years. And in that 50th year, you get a kind of a hyper Shabbat or a uber Shabbat of years, where it's, it is a sense of things returning back to their natural state. So in the seventh year, you let the land lie fallow, you don't harvest, you don't plant, you let it be. And in the seven times seventh, in the, in the Jubilee year, the land actually goes back to its original owner if it was sold in the meantime. And any debts that we owe are remitted. We're not obligated to, to pay them. We go even on that. And slaves who were a part of bibl the biblical world, they're all set free. So there is no permanent possessions. There is no permanent servitude. And we have a, a sense of things going back to their natural state once a week, once every seven years, once every 49, 50 years, that sees that all of this is not under our control, but under God's control. And I think well, it's meant to give us a sense of humility. It is a beautiful concept. And certainly the Torah speaks of Shabbat as a gift from God to humanity. Um, and in Genesis, um, it identifies that God blesses the Sabbath uh, before giving it to us. But one of the questions our listeners might be interested in, if you can respond to, is a weekly Shabbat usually um, impacts my and my family's personal life. It might impact on the work that I do, but that's a choice that I could make not to work seven days a week and to acknowledge the power of um, the Shabbat to rejuvenate my soul and my very essence. But the laws of the sabbatical and jubilee impact more than the individual they impact the entire society. And so those who own land in the seventh year are required to let it lay fallow. Um, 
did the Torah have concerns about how uh, people would make a living? Um, and in the sabbatical year, if you had bought the land, um, it returned to its original owner, which seems to be quite disruptive. And if you had slaves, uh, regardless of when you bought them, the Torah doesn't see, suggest um, what happens if you bought them in the 49th year. Um, so these two aspects seem quite intrusive to the life of the community. Um, do you want to comment on uh, how the Jewish people of antiquity um, tried to wrestle with the conceptual design and the reality? So I want to answer it two different ways, Steve. The, the first is, practically, how did they deal with the fact that you were, if you were buying land and you were buying it close to the end of the time that you were going to be able to keep it, or purchased property of one sort or another that was going to revert to its owner, original owner, um, they, they worked at, they, they were not fools. <laughs> they were not, we tend to look back on it and think, well, they were, they were simple peasants uh, farming their land, but they were pretty sophisticated. And one of the things that they worked out over time, of course, was that the value of the land or the value of the possessions that had to be returned would be affected by how long it was before it would revert back again to the owner. So if I was buying a piece of land and the and I knew it was about to go back to that owner, I would pay a small amount because I'm really renting it for the short period of time. As for the slave, it's the same notion. So I think we've got to give respect to uh, folks who were part of that biblical world that they understood the same economic realities that we do. So but like I, buying a used car. Yes, and, and but there it's it's a question of how long you have had it that right. affects the value. Now it's a question of how long you're going to be able to have it that affects its value. But if I can answer a, a different way the same question, and Please. that is that is what since this was all reverting and it was an imposition. If you own land, you couldn't keep it forever. If you own a slave. Uh, hard as that is for us to talk about today, that you you also understood that that was going to revert to 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 his natural free state. Um, in all these cases, what it meant was this was an imposition. In the same way as you started off a few moments ago talking about Shabbat, it means you cannot work that day. If you take it seriously, you cannot work. You might have to pass up certain opportunities, business opportunities. People who are what they call Shomer Shabbat who observe the Sabbath in Jewish terms, uh, have to make lots of sacrifices, many of them business sacrifices, as well as personal and social. And it's the same with all of these elements, whether it's the Sabbath or Shemitah or, or Jubilee. This entailed sacrifices, but it was meant to, to entail sacrifices because it was a reminder. It was almost like being clubbed over the head. Don't think that you really own this. This is not yours, ultimately. This is yours to use. It's a stewardship. It's not an ownership. And as with any stewardship, you have to handle it with responsibility. So every one of these moments is a moment to stop and say, there's something bigger than me, and I have responsibilities to the world around me. So for example, in the Shemitah, the year that you allowed your land to lie fallow, I'm not 
I don't know much about farming, and it may be that your listeners know a great deal, but but it's clear that if you don't plant in the year before, you're not going to have cro- a crop, or you'll only have vestiges of small amounts of crop. There won't be that much there. But what grows by itself in that fallow year, the, the doesn't just say, let it be. It says, let it be, and it's open for taking for anyone in the community who needs it. And in, in, in that way, it's a reminder that you've had stewardship of this for six years, but in the seventh year, everybody has access to it because we are all God's children and we all have a right to live. And part of my stewardship is I'm going to give up that seventh year for myself and let it be for those who have a, a need, for those who are hungry. And in the, in the, the 50th year, in the Jubilee year, it's the same thing. I've got this piece of land. And I'm going to not see it as mine. I'm going to see it as mine to take care of, to be a steward of. Um, and, and therefore, I have to handle it right. And that means leaving the corners of my fields for the poor. And it means the people who I have working for me as slaves or indentured servants, they have to go free. This is, my, this is part of my stewardship because this is mine as a loan from God, but it's from God. And the land isn't mine. It's God's. The line, the verse that I keep coming back to, Steve, is, is where it says in, in, in verse 23 of chapter 25, uh, it says, But the land must not be sold beyond reclaim, for the land is mine. You are but strangers resident with me. In other words, be a little bit humble. Have a, have a little humility. You may have amassed great acreage and you may be a, a, a giant landowner, and you may think you're pretty good, but but uh, you're just you are just doing this as in stewardship for God. It's not yours. It's it is it's God's, and that ought to give you a proper sense of humility. Um, you remind our listeners how um, the Torah teaches us some theology very differently than mm-hmm. other sacred texts. Um, the Gospels and the Quran, for example, certainly speak of a theological perspective of the world and um, help the believer to have the right uh, prescription in their eyeglasses of how to see the world spiritually. The Torah does it through this notion of law. Do you, as you teach this section of Torah, um, have a sense of whether the ancient Israelites and then um, their descendants in the land of Israel actualize these laws? Perhaps not um, as we do today, and I want to get to that, but during the um, um, settlement of the Holy Land and afterwards with the expansion of the tribes into a peoplehood and to one nation, do we have any sense that they actually internalize these laws? Yeah, so I mean, there's a great deal of question from historians about whether this was an ideal or whether this was ever actually practiced. And there's, there's some reason to doubt that it was, it was actually practiced because it's fairly, it, it's fairly convoluted. And, and the question is, would people have done it voluntarily? Would there have been some kind of way to to police it and see that it happened and so on? So there's a little bit of healthy skepticism about whether this was a description of actual reality or whether it was an ideal. But you talked at the beginning about the, the two weeks Torah portions. 
this week and next week, but that are very often combined together. And I like the notion about Bahar and Bahukotai being a, a conjoined portion because Bahar is on the mountaintop and it's, they are getting ready to go into the land. They are, they are looking ahead to this ideal state that they're going to live in. And you might expect God at that moment, or Moses on behalf of God, to be telling everybody, here are the great principles or the theological uh, perspectives, the, the, the macro picture. But in fact, it's exactly the opposite, that, that, uh, that the commandments that are given here are practical everyday laws. It doesn't give the big picture. It gives the little details of day-to-day life, the sort of granular details of how you live your days and your weeks and your years. And I think that is the biblical perspective, more so than perhaps New Testament, more so than perhaps the Quran. This is about the theology being contained in the everyday. And I do think that that's I mean, it's a great point because the Torah portion is entitled Bahar, a resonance of Mount Sinai, the mountain. And as on Mount Sinai, it was um, a powerful revelation. So you uh, remind the listeners that the title itself, as identified by the Hebrew uh, word, would lead us to expect that grandness. Um, and it does the exact opposite. It reminds us that it's in the little things. It's in the specifics of life that the Torah and then later Judaism um, express the notion that it's there that you find your covenantal commitment. Yeah. I, and, and I think that's true of every element of Jewish life that I, at least I can think of. It doesn't. It doesn't so much concept. Certainly, uh, the Bible doesn't. The, the scriptures don't. It, it doesn't say here are the great principles. It says here is ex- here is the way to handle it. And I think about things like like sadaka, charity. It's usually translated, and it isn't give what you can, and and you might feel good doing this, and sort of feelings and 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 broad principles. It says do it this way, do it this way. Do it with these parameters. Do it with these guidelines, so that even when you're not in the mood, for example, you still do it because it's a commandment. And here is the same thing. And in doing it, you get the, the proper feeling. And in doing it, you understand the meaning. It isn't. It isn't the idea leads to the practice. It's the practice leads to the idea. Uh, that I think is very typical of Judaism. Well. I mean, it's an interesting statement because you represent a movement of Judaism that certainly is ambivalent about practice. And if what you say is a truism for the Torah and for um, rabbinic tradition, that Naasev Nishma, which is what the Israelites recited at the bottom of Mount Sinai when offered the Aseret Adibrot, the Ten Commandments, we will do it. And then we will often, Nishma is translated as hearken. Um, I think it's probably more closely um, associated with um, understand. Yeah, yeah. 
Sure. Um, so how so have you always taught your congregants throughout your more than 40 years of rabbinic life, um, kind of the opposite of the movement you uh, uh, represent? Well, and I think that movement, the reform movement, has changed as well as as well as I have changed uh, through the years. And as you say, it used to be very much what are the things that we believe in and therefore what should our practice be? And I think the problem with that is very often it led to no practice. And what I think has changed over the last few decades, and it does make, speaking of humility, it reminds me of, of my own humility that I can say the last few decades. <laughs> it's, it's, wow, that's, a, that's a, an awfully long time. Um, but through the course of my rabbinate, I've seen a great deal of change towards turning it around and saying, if you go from the idea to the practice, you will probably never practice very much. But if you practice certain things, you may find that there's meaning in them. So there's been a, a reclaiming of practice it, that it opens things up to the great ideas. And that's what I think is going on in the portion here. Well, that, I mean, it's interesting because the Torah, both in this portion and in so many other sections of Leviticus, um, as I indicated in the introduction, we're at the end of the book of Leviticus, which is often called um, the Holiness Code. Right, right. Um, and uses the word, uh, the Hebrew word kadosh, very often, you shall be holy for the Lord your God is holy. And it seems to be focused on holiness as doing. Yes, Not absolutely. necessarily as a state yeah. of being, but as yeah. the result of that which the individual does, or in this case, the collective does, um, to emulate the holiness of God. And I think that, that that notion of holiness, it implies one thing, maybe greater than any other, and that is the notion of proper humility. I think that the, the best message that that that, that the that scriptures has for us in a world where it's all about ego and it's all about the self is that notion of humility, that there's something bigger than us, that what's bigger than us is God. What's bigger than us is the community around us. And that should make us feel properly humble and that we don't, I'm, I always, I laugh because I remember there was a politician referred to in, in the United States years ago, somebody quipped, that this person was born on third base and thought he hit a triple. Uh, you know, it's that notion of you end up in a privileged place in the world and you think it's all your own doing. Well, it's not your own doing. It's something bigger than you that made that possible. And the, the message of the Torah is very much the opposite. Understand that's what, what the sabbatical year is about. That's what Sabbath is about. That's what the Jubilee is about. It's about there's something bigger than you. And because you are a small part of it and you, it isn't all you're doing, you need to have a responsibility to others. You need to have that sense of humility. Steve, if I could, I know we're, we're running close here. But I want to share something with you that happened this week that, that blew my mind. And it really is about this notion of, of something bigger than us and that nature represents that something bigger. I was thinking this week about the, the, the land and cutting off how people will own land and put signs on the outside saying no trespassing. And I had this one of these moments where the light bulb went on and I thought of a song that I remembered 
a rock and a rock and roll song from I'm going to say the late '60s called Signs. And one of the verses was that you put you have a sign on uh, on the outside of the property that says trespassers will be shot on sight. So I jumped on the fence and I yelled at the house, "Hey, what gives you the right to put up a fence to keep me out and keep Mother Nature in? If God was here, He'd tell you to your face." Man, you're some kind of sinner. So this idea of it gets well, it we're going to end with that. Uh, can, I, can I end with one thought? I looked to see who the band was who sang it. It's a band called the Five Man Electrical Band. Where are they from? Ottawa, Ontario. Canada. Well, on that note, I want to thank my guest this morning, Rabbi Elliot Strom, and. You can find a podcast of this morning's show on iTunes or a podcast on the chri.ca website. Thank you again, Rabbi Strom, for Jewish faith and Jewish facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. Shalom and have a good day. <laughs>